This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. It's alive. Oh, in the name of God. Now I know what it feels like to be God. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types of wearing me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. I see. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. All right, you win. You win. I give. I'll say it. I'll say it. I'll say it. Destiny! Destiny! No escaping! That's for me! Destiny! Destiny! No escaping! That's for me! Destiny! Hello. Hello. <laughs> that was a normal. Yeah. I said that normally. Hello, Alex. How are you? Hello, Sarah. I'm so good. It's very nice to see you. We're going to talk about two movies. What are they? We are talking about Frankenstein and a young Frankenstein. That is the truth. Um, before we start, uh, we are Why Are Dads? We are a show that talks about dads and fatherhood and our relationship as adults with our dads as people who have been impacted by dads for the positive negative and everywhere in between and we do that by looking at movies and today we're talking about halloween dads for anyone who is interested in supporting the show we have a patreon we are going to have a little episode in which we talk about other mel brooksy things and other stuff uh that you can check out there if you don't want to uh patreon that's fine if you can't patreon that's fine yeah sarah you selected frankenstein and young frankenstein yes frankenstein is a movie about a mad scientist creating a monster who then goes on a rampage and young frankenstein is about that mad scientist grandson creating another monster who starts to go on a rampage before the power of love and song intervenes I didn't realize how much of a straight sequel Young Frankenstein is. Neither did I for my whole life. And it's very funny to me that neither of us had seen regular Frankenstein before we recorded this episode. I had just assumed that a lot more of Young Frankenstein was invented by Mel Brooks, but it really feels like a faithful sequel. Like it's it's shot the same way. It looks very similar. He had... I believe some of the same props as the original like it's it's it feels like it's trying to be a sequel it's faithful in all of the facts for the most part i mean it obviously plays some parts up for humor but it's basically like what if i made a straight sequel that also has the amount of neuroses in it that i have in me me being mel brooks (laughs) (laughs) it's also a sequel like army of darkness is a sequel right yes Yes. same characters Different tone, but like it, they feel related. You can you can see that they're family. I love the concept of like a tonally different sequel a whole lot. I for a long time really wanted to see a movie about like the widow of the lawyer who gets killed in Jurassic Park. <laughs> 
Just a quiet character study. Yeah, she's married to this asshole. We only learn like in the distance that she is, you know, from from a phone call or something that she's recovering from this thing that happened a long time ago. And it's just totally an entirely different sequel. <laughs> yeah, I think this would be a good vehicle for Mary Steenburgen. <laughs> What what were your um what were your takeaways uh, or or I guess I should say like what should we be preparing listeners for to listen to in this episode? We're talking about legacy. We're talking about the idea of preserving a family name. Uh, we're also talking about the things that fathers will do to protect their sons from the damage that they're capable of. I don't know. I feel like this story is really about the toxicity of of fatherhood. Unless love is one of the ingredients. And unless you like actively make love a primary ingredient. Right. Like the guiding ingredient. Like unless that steers your primary response to your child doing something that you don't know what to make of. I don't know. I think it's a good guide to parenting. I say this as someone who who doesn't and has never parented. So like maybe it's not, but... But I mean, if you look at them back to back, like Frankenstein is like very much a movie about a bad and absentee dad. Yeah. And and young Frankenstein, I mean, I don't think maybe you don't notice this if you watch it in an isolated way. But young Frankenstein, in contrast, is about a man who tries to be a good father. Yeah. And who doesn't always have the best ideas, but who who really, really tries. Like, I think unbridled enthusiasm is a term that can be applied to Gene Wilder in, in every Mel Brooks movie. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should probably just watch these movies or talk about them uh, in the future slash past tense. Let's, let's go eat these pies we've already baked for our home <laughs> audience. <laughs> I like that a lot. Oh, I can't wait to talk about these. This is very exciting. I'm glad that you brought these up. Sarah, you're the one who suggested that not only we watch one Frankenstein movie, but we watch two. Can you talk about the movies that we are watching or that we watch for today and why you arrived at those movies? We are watching James Whale's 1931 Frankenstein, and we are watching Mel Brooks's 1974 Young Frankenstein um, I grew up watching Young Frankenstein, and I had never watched regular Frankenstein before prepping for this episode. I decided to do this as a double feature, A, because both of these movies are pretty short. You can watch both of them in less than three hours. Um, and B, because I was watching Young Frankenstein, a movie I have seen many times and love, um, and it got to a scene which I just like had never fully appreciated before, which is the scene where... Which is a scene where after he's been rampaging through the town, they have caught the monster and have him back at the castle and they're having this confrontation. <laughs> and Gene Wilder, as the creator of the monster, says, you are good. And the monster just like wails and then like Victor holds his monster and it's like, this is a nice boy. <laughs> And then the entire movie changes and it becomes, I mean, it was always a comedy, but then it becomes, you know, just, I don't know. To me, it's the loveliest of the Mel Brooks movies because it does, it does that thing that Mel Brooks does a lot, which is to deescalate the conflict in a traditional story by asking like, what could happen between these people that would turn off this collision course 
with death that they're on. And this movie came out the same year as Blazing Saddles, which I think did the same kind of thing with the Western, you know, and these movies are both love letters to traditional Hollywood movies of the, you know, the 30s and then the 40s and 50s. In this case, it's the de-escalation of the creator embracing his monster. <laughs> and mm. I was just like, oh my God, it's a dad movie. So that's now we're talking about it. I have a similar history to the original Frankenstein. I, I grew up loving the idea of horror from the get-go. And there was a book at the library at my elementary school that I can't even imagine how old this book was at that time, but it was, it was about like the universal monsters and it was about King Kong. And it was, this, it was, I loved all the pictures and I loved everything about it. I loved the imagery of Frankenstein. But if I'm being honest, this is the first time I watched this Frankenstein movie. Wow. And my, my only exposure to Frankenstein up to this point in cinema, uh, outside of cartoons and, and other places was a movie movie that I rewatched a couple nights ago, which was perfect for preparation for this, which was Monster Squad, in which Frankenstein is beautifully played by Tom Noonan. Our favorite actor, Tom Noonan. Tom Noonan, if you're listening, uh, you are our favorite actor in all of acting on this show. And you act your balls off, Tom, in Monster Squad in the biggest, most beautiful way. But that was my, I realized that that was my only frame of reference for Frankenstein until traditional clunky, tall, big-shoed Frankenstein, yeah. until watching this movie. And I didn't realize that Young Frankenstein, while not official, is essentially a sequel to Frankenstein, which is hilarious yeah, to think it about totally is. when you watch them back to back. And the other is thematically the theme to theme continuation is so interesting because the classic Frankenstein ultimately is about creating a new life, uh, creating a new life without a woman, which is a really sort of interesting piece that I'm mm. sure that we'll talk mm. about. And it touches a bit on family legacy. Uh, there are some pieces, there are pieces in there that are touched on throughout the movie. The humans are the real villains. This must have been the inspiration for how Freddy Krueger got killed because that's ultimately the boogeyman gets burned down mm. by the angry villagers. Same sort of thing happens. Oh. Wow. Uh, but then Young Frankenstein is in that it is a movie that carries on the legacy of Frankenstein and it loving Frankenstein and it being an homage to that style of movie. It's also a movie about legacy and reconciling legacy, which is yeah. fascinating because we have a person who is so bound up and anxious about his association with his family legacy that when people ask if he is Frankenstein, he says that he is Franken, Frankenstein, 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 yeah, Frankenstein. Right. He's, he has so much anxiety about the baggage that his family name carries that he tries to create his own identity out of nowhere. And then the rest of the movie is him reconciling who he is and what that baggage ultimately means. And there are very interesting yeah. results along the way. But what were your impressions of OG Frankenstein? Oh, I mean, I really was blown away by it. And I don't know if this is in every edition of the movie, but the version of it that I watched has, I believe, the director James Whale. Yeah. Maybe it's someone else. It just opens with him, like, flipping aside this curtain and just stepping out. And he's like, hello. <laughs> And basically, it's brilliant. He's telling you that this is your chance to leave because this movie is going to be so scary that, like, maybe you can't handle it. So, like, this is your chance. 
And I bet people got up and left. Totally. But there's a nod to that in Young Frankenstein with Frankenstein. Oh, I'm going to have a field day with this. Yes. Where before the performance between, um, uh, you know, Frankenstein, the creator and the monster, uh, there is a similar announcement, hmm. uh, which I think is like a visual nod to oh, that, yeah. but not sort of not the same, the same content. Yeah. I loved, I thought that that was amazing. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> They should do that still. I mean, I know that, you know, in the in the 50s and 60s, it was still a thing to be like, customers will not be seated after the shower scene in Psycho or whatever, you know, or don't give away the secret. And we have little half-hearted attempts at things like that, you know, in, in movies coming out now. But yeah, I would love to see a return of that kind of uh, showmanship about horror movies and then you know and then it opens and he, and the whole time I was watching it I was like this movie came out in 1931 <laughs> and, <laughs> and just the newness of everything about it mm. um you know it's it's really astounding to me how well it holds up because and especially there's a a scene at the end that I'm amazed wasn't iconic. And there were a lot of scenes that I was like, I know there are iconic scenes in this movie that I know by heart. And then there are scenes that are even more powerful that I feel like I've never seen referenced anywhere. And maybe that's because people wanted to respect the power of this movie and not make them into a cultural meme. Because we all know the scene where Frankenstein's monster, he's on the run, he's, you know, just hanging out loose in town um, for a pretty short period of time, actually, in the movie. And he encounters this little girl, and they're throwing flower petals in the water, or they're throwing flowers in, and she throws one in, and she's like, see how it floats? And so he apparently throws her into the water, believing that she too will float. Mm -hmm. And then she drowns. Right, that kid kid dies. That kid is dead. I was shocked. And then... (laughs) And that scene's upsetting, you know, and that's an iconic horror scene. But to me, it was even more horrific to watch the scene near the end where the little girl's father is carrying her lifeless body Mm. into town. And the camera just follows him for quite a while. And he just has this thousand yard stare. And you're just watching a father carry his dead daughter's limp body Um, And then, you know, this is going to inspire the town to come together as a mob to hunt down the mobster and kill him. But I was just, you know, just amazed by sort of the rawness of that and just thinking about, you know, movies have just not, (laughs) talkies haven't existed for that long at the time that Frankenstein comes out and just going to see that and seeing child death depicted in really a pretty straightforward way. And like, it's also, you know, a lot of kids die by drowning you know like that's a reasonable childhood fear and it's actually a very good cautionary tale because like whether or not there was a monster that family sure lived by a large body of water to which their child had unrestricted access (laughs) (laughs) i thought that that whole sequence was so effective especially because when we meet the little girl whose name is maria and her dad 
her dad is so sweet to her for 1931, right? Like I assume that all dads are just are crusty meatheads. And, but this movie in a lot of ways is about like absentee dadism. And so there's this baby that's kind of thrown into the world and then with no guidance and there's a lot of issues and it, it, it finds its way and in clunkily finding its way, it hurts a lot of people and it hurts itself. Mm-hmm. Then to see Maria's dad who is very sweet, extraordinarily affectionate, like touches her in in really delicate ways, clearly loves her and is excited to see her again. Like that scene to see his pain and sort of like what that pain motivates was effective, not just to me because it was an angry father, but because it was Mm -hmm. an angry father who wasn't, his disposition wasn't exclusively anger. There was like a, a switching in there at some point because this guy seemed pretty cool you know, otherwise. Yeah. And that this is motivated by grief as opposed to just, you know, anger over, over property damage, basically. Daddy, won't you stay and play with me a little while? I'm too busy, darling. You stay and play with the kitty, huh? Bye, Daddy. Goodbye. Be a good girl now. Come on, kitty. What is the story of Frankenstein? We have a scientist, a doctor. Whatever. Who is trying to create life out of, you know, pieces of corpses sewn together. He might actually get himself a whole... Does he have a whole corpse in this one or is he sewing pieces? He has a whole corpse, I think, but Frankenstein's... The monster's wrists are sewn up. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. And he has the bolts on the head. So, yeah. Right. It looks Uh. like they may be parts he's trying to create this trying to create this life it's an experiment he's been working through animals now it's on time to uh time to deal with uh animating a human in doing so everyone around him thinks he's kind of lost it in trying to create life on his own he's completely ditched his relationship with his fiance his fiance and this guy that wants to fuck his fiance and his teacher who is a who is a, a, a scientist as well try to intervene in intervening they come to realize that he's actually going to create what we now know as Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein's monster comes about and is alive in town, left to get away, I guess, or to like get out into the town. He causes a lot of trouble because he doesn't, he's brand new to the world and he's just like a giant accidental killing machine. And the town upset by the death of this little girl and upset by this tinkering with science period, uh, come back to kill Frankenstein's monster. And the last scene is so sad because you have what is, again, effectively a toddler, not even a toddler, like a newborn baby in a functioning body uh, with a crowd down below that's burning the building that the that the monster is on top of and he's just whimpering and crying and sad and has no control over his body and stuff is falling on him and we're just left to know he burns to death and that's the end of the movie yes no it's amazing and that to me is like the most enduring horror of it all and that you know we see him he's trapped under a beam you know, he's been he's had this like deep growling voice before, but now he's just he's high picked whimpering. And then we cut to this pretty wide shot of this burning windmill that he's trapped in and this crowd of villagers arrayed around it with their torches. And you can hear very clearly that they're all cheering and having a good time. 
and then they fade out. And then I think they were like, let's not end with that. Let's have like one last little nice scene to show that everyone's fine now. And then they have a scene where like Frankenstein is sleeping and his father-in-law. Oh yeah, I forgot about this scene. <laughs> Talk about that scene. <laughs> his dad. Is it his dad or his father-in-law? It's his dad because Frankenstein is is the family name. Right. And so of his dad, who I think is adjacent to the brewing industry, has like seven or eight lady servants. I don't know exactly what the ladies of the house. They all come to his door and they present this bottle of wine that we heard earlier in the movie belonged to his grandmother and his grandmother would not let his grandfather drink the wine. That is probably worth unpacking, but I don't have it in me. <laughs> and they're like, we thought that uh, we thought that old Frankenstein in there, who's very traumatized with this whole situation that just happened, would like a glass of this wine. And the dad, the dad's like, oh, the dad is an amazing and hilarious character. And he takes a glass of the wine and he goes in to bring it to his son and then turns around halfway into the room and says, he doesn't need this. And then he drinks the wine. And they toast to the family's name. They toast to a son for the house of Frankenstein, which I guess, which I took to mean like my son was saved from being killed by the monster that he created and the town burned the monster to death. So like everything's fine now. And I guess he's married and they're going to have another boy. So there is, and maybe he's talking about his son, but in any case, it ends with this idea of like, well, Hurrah! We killed that monster and we still have our family legacy. Yes! We meet uh, Baron Frankenstein, who is the who is the dad. Again, such a fun character. His All of his personality and mannerisms. I love how whoever adapted this read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and first of all was like, alright, we're going to cut like 90% of this. The thing about the monster teaching himself to read <laughs> by reading Goethe, absolutely not. The Arctic frame story, no. And on top of that was like, what we need is like a Charlie Ruggles like comic relief character. I cannot imagine attempting to adapt this book into a movie. And it turns out the way you do it, at least in the 1930s, is to throw out 90% of the plot. And, and make it very simple. When we first meet Baron Frankenstein, he he's very, and this is a through line through these two movies, he's very upset about this idea that family appearances might be disrupted because he knows that there's something that they, that he should be upset about with regard to how his son is doing. The woman that her son, his son is supposed to marry isn't telling him that it's basically that his son likes playing with dead things. <laughs> right. He thinks his son is having an affair and his fiance has to be like, no, he just likes sewing together bits of dead people. Right. And as you said just now, with regard to how the movie ends, the resolve for him, the happy ending is like the family name and family legacy is preserved. That becomes a theme. Again, we'll talk about it in a bit in Young Frankenstein, which is um, no, the family, the family name is associated with a, a mad scientist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice try, though. It turns out they Streisand affected the monster. <laughs> what were the immediate dad themes that you saw in uh, classic Frankenstein? Oh, I mean, yeah, the adorable comic relief dad who at the end is like, well, it looks like everything worked out for the Frankenstein family. I don't know why I'm doing a voice that sounds like Bane. Um, the Frankensteins will live on. And now my son knows not to make any monsters. because. And then it feels like it's being sold as like, I just am in awe 
of how I feel like the one of the most upsetting things a horror movie can do is like not be clear about whether the people who made it know what the most horrifying parts are. <laughs> and so it's so horrifying that like we end with this monster being burned to death, like this innocent creature that has no idea how to not be destructive, that was abandoned by its creators, or, you know, or who escaped its creators, but who, you know, who was also tortured by the people who made him. Cause one of the first things we see after the creature's creation is um, Frankenstein's assistant, whose name is Fritz in this movie. And then I think he becomes Igor in sequels, but I was shocked by that. <laughs> I was like, when does Igor come? Does he yeah. replace Fritz? And he does. I guess. But originally a guy named Fritz worked there and he needed to be replaced by Igor because he deduced that the monster was afraid of fire. And so like, there's a scene that was apparently cut in order to fit with the newly imposed haze code that involved like Fritz terrorizing the monster with fire. And I was like, how long of a scene was that? Frankenstein's monster does not love fire. Like the second to be clear, like neither do normal humans born of women, you know, no one really loves having a fire waved close to their face, you know, so he's being reasonable. <laughs> so can we talk about the the thing that immediately struck me is that Frankenstein is it Victor? It's Victor Frankenstein, right? In this case, the, the... I think he might actually have a different name of different first name in this movie. Let me just IMDb it. Okay. No, his name is Henry Frankenstein for some reason. I have no idea why. It's so weird. So the biggest standout piece to me, aside from this absentee father theme, is Henry Frankenstein is starting to disturb his wife a little bit by way of his habits. And his habits are trying to create a child without her. <laughs> What's happening there? <laughs> Again, is like how conscious are the filmmakers with regard to what message they're conveying here? I don't know how conscious they are, but this is a movie about a guy who becomes fully disinterested in his fiance. She tries to get his interest back, but becomes disinterested because he becomes obsessed with this idea of creating life without her. One of the lines that was cut to get past censors was Frankenstein saying, now I know what it feels like to be God, which I feel like is, this is the monster movie of the next several decades. And like, we still make monster movies, but it feels like the monster movie like was an American institution, certainly in the nuclear age, when like one of the things that we were kind of figuring out how we felt about as a country and maybe horror movies were one of the places for us to explore our worst fears and then allow ourselves to presume that all of this nuclear stuff would probably be fine, though, in the end, really, was with monster movies and with, you know, the mad scientist figuring out what to do with their creation. And it feels like most of the time you have to hunt it down and kill it, <laughs> you know, and guess that this was like the template that this movie set in stone the same way that we can look at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and be like, oh, that's where slasher movies came from. They all go back to this original Rosetta Stone. Right, right. 
And yeah, and and the with regard to like what that statement is about science, I'm I'm still I'm still perplexed because it, I mean I understand why, as far as the code goes, they cut that line out. But again, it it inadvertently or maybe intentionally reveals its ideology, which is the great thing about being a god is you can create life without all those pesky women involved. <laughs> yeah, you know, like this guy's. This guy's primary interest, this guy has, we don't know anything about the fertility of his partner, but she's very interested enough to try to get him back involved and interested in uh, uh, their courtship. And he's so bothered with this idea about creation um, and about advancing, you know, advancing his name and not being crazy. He's very, very interested in having people see that he is not crazy and he can do this thing. And I don't know... Again, it's hard to figure out the intentionality and we kind of relatively on our end intentionally don't dive in too much to the background of of uh, how and why movie the movies we're talking about were created. But, you know, there's a lot of I know you can, but should you in this movie? Yeah. And I also it's interesting to me to think about the differences between this and the novel where, first of all, we're not told <laughs> how the monster is made. He's just like, and then I figured out how to reanimate dead flesh. And then I did it anyway. And you're like, what? Wait, are you kidding me? Like, I guess like imagining the infuriated readers in uh, 1818 um, being like, no, like at least make something up. Come on. And so this movie succeeds in at least making something up because we learned that the way to reanimate dead tissue is to shoot a bunch of electricity through it works like a charm. Um, and in this movie, Dr. Frankenstein is at least interested in his creation after he creates it. Whereas in the novel that this movie is working from his source material, he successfully reanimates this corpse creature he has sewn together. He is immediately horrified by it and rejects it. And just wants to escape it and to have absolutely nothing to do with it, which is just like, I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting that this movie actually has the creature's creator be more interested in him than, than in the source material where like what we're working from is a story where someone brings a creature into the world, immediately regrets it, feels no sense of connection with the creature they have made. And it's just like, I just wish that you would disappear, but we can't have that. So I guess my whole life will be forever marked by the fact that I made you and I didn't know what to do with you. And then everyone was surprised when this book was written by a woman. <laughs> <laughs> I first read Frankenstein in college. Or no, I first read it in high school, actually. Um, and then, you know, read it again in college because it is one of those texts that if you take literature classes like you will end up reading a few times because it's one of the classic romantic texts i think it's generally acknowledged as the first science fiction book ever and it was all written by a teenager at a lake vacation home with her husband and his shitty friends yeah i just feel like this is a story written by an incredibly sharp teenage girl who had thoughts and feelings about what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to have babies and to have your life defined by 
these babies that you are having um, whose health might be bad, who might, you know, who are who are all too frequently in this society that uh, we're living in in the early 19th century. Like, I think the tragedy of dead children was just something that was very clearly on the surface part of women's lives. And the fact that you were going to bring death into the world or you were going to bring a creature into the world that had a good chance of destroying your health or killing you. I don't know. I, I see in this in this story as it was originally brought to us, the dance of death and creation that just is reproduction, basically. To which, you know, the idea of... of uh, circumventing a woman's uterus to create life, it's like, huh, that's kind of a good idea, actually, in context. <laughs> that's, I mean, those are all amazing points. And I think on the other end of that, too, is as the creator goes, as Shelley looking at what a male creator of life would be like, it's pretty sharp, right? Because it's mm. like, I made it. I'm proud. I made it. Look at me. I'm great. Oh, it's it's a problem. I'm out. I'm out of here. Bye. <laughs> totally. Have your mother check your homework, monster. I have to work late in the city. <laughs> Until you're 35. <laughs> and the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon. <laughs> and what we see uh, is an examination of what abandoned children are like, you know, the different kinds of literal and figurative demons they deal with. They don't know how to play with other people. They inadvertently throw little girls in a lake. They clunk around a village until the village gets real angry about all their clunking around. They wear ugly shoes. They have bad posture. <laughs> <Right>. Exactly. <laughs> And I and I am I am curious. I would love to know more, and maybe I'll look into it too late for this episode. But I I I would love to know more about what the filmmakers were aware of, because similarly, you know, I'm watching this movie, and I'm curious about how aware it is of the fact that you know, like many many monster movies and many many, many horror movies, the humans are the bad guys. Yeah, the monster is just an example or opportunity to show people essentially engage in a lynching. Yes. And then it's a happy ending, like you say, because the family name and legacy was restored. Like that was the primary, <laughs> the primary concern for all the characters is like, will our legacy be okay? Yeah. And the question of like, what will teach my silly boy to stop running around <laughs> making flesh creatures and doing mad scientist stuff and just what's it's like wanting your son to give up on being a drummer you know and then like he just finally has like a bad enough experience that he's like I'm tired of this I'm just gonna come home and do whatever our family business is. I guess like just being rich because it's Baron Frankenstein like I I've I'm this is my last monster, you know, and so it's like a father who's happy that his son has finally like, you know, had the experience that taught him to move on and just be a dad and live his life. And you know, and it's also this is all happening on the on the eve of his wedding that he's obsessed with creating this monster. And then we have a scene where the monster quite fortuitously stumbles into the Frankenstein house where his bride to be is getting ready and in the in the book he murders her um and in the movie as in the war 
we could see someone get sort of lightly strangled. There's kind of a cool reckoning that, again, who knows how intentional, but there's a cool reckoning where the town is on to the monster and they're upset and they need to deal with it. And so all the townspeople get together and people are assigned leadership roles. And person A has to go out west with all these people behind them and go and find the monster, hopefully. And person B, who is the creator, is assigned by the town <laughs> with with a with a search party to go and clean up his mess. And I don't know, again, how intentional that was. Like, I don't know how much the town realized what they were doing by assigning him. But they're basically like, you got to go east with all these people and go find this thing. And as a result, we get this really great, conf- I don't know if it's great, but we get, we get a confrontation between the monster and its creator. And the monster ends up throwing his, his absentee dad off a building, which is exceptionally satisfying uh, despite what happens to the monster himself. Yeah, and which is also what saves his life. And I also wondered if this was kind of a King Kong homage that it's like this panicked beast is like climbing to the top of the tallest structure he can find which then, you know, which seems like a smart thing to do if you're a wild animal, but if you live in a city where people can shoot you or, you know a town where people can set wooden structures on fire, then like it doesn't work. Like it's the, the sort of animal wisdom of the monster being outsmarted by society. Yeah, you're and it, it was such a good point about it ends up saving his life. Yeah, he throws his father off, which is kind of thematically satisfying. But at the end of the day, it's it's what ends up preserving this asshole. Yeah. And I think what makes it, you know, just a confrontation and not necessarily a great one is that like Frankenstein, once again, fortuitously, finds his monster, his very own monster, and then they scuffle and the monster knocks him unconscious and then drags him to this windmill um, where it's all going to go down. And yeah, I guess, I mean, the other thing is that the monster isn't verbal. He can't communicate. Like they, it's funny when you're used to the culturally archetypal Frankenstein's monster that this movie invented and which has been pretty unchanged too. Like Dracula has sort of you know, Dracula is a more elastic character. There's sort of different takes on Dracula. We have tons of Dracula movies consistently coming out. Frankenstein hasn't really been reimagined very much, I presume, because no one wants to have sex with him. Yeah. In Dracula, basically, the archetype for Dracula is Prince at all times. It's like this like sexy kind of ethereal being. Right. What modern monster did you recognize in Frankenstein? Oh, I mean, I... <laughs> I think Frankenstein in this movie is, or the Frankenstein's monster, is the figure of the criminal. And even as they're burning this windmill, they're calling him a murderer. They're not calling him a monster. They're calling him a murderer. And they're hunting him down in order to perform vigilante justice. And another thing I found interesting about the casting of this, first of all, with both Dracula and Frankenstein, with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. It's just like, here are two Eastern European guys trying to get work in Hollywood, basically. <laughs> um, and also just how, and I think of this as someone who has a prominent brow, Boris Karloff, extremely prominent brow. Um, and then I was watching Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer the other day. Michael Rooker, very prominent brow. And he's lit in that movie in some scenes in a way that casts his eyes completely in shadow in a way that's just uh, scary if you're watching a movie that is cinematographically thoughtful because you're like, I can't see this person's expression. I have no idea what their intentions are toward me, which I think is one of the reasons why a prominent brow 
and kind of recessive eyes can register as scary, which I think about that a lot because my face is kind of like that. And I find it so interesting that Frankenstein's monster in this iconic portrayal is someone who's defined as criminal, murderous, dangerous, like not so much by the fact that he's like a gross falling apart monster who is sewn together by some guy who's probably not very good at sewing, but by the fact that he has like a big forehead, <laughs> right? Because that's clear. I think that is one of the key that's one of the key parts of depicting Frankenstein, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not projecting this, right? No, I mean that's, and, and we will see that in Young Frankenstein through the prosthesis in Young Frankenstein is it's a forehead, right? There's a heavy construction of forehead, and also to bring it back earlier to the reference to Monster Squad and Tom Newman and Noonan, that's what stands out to me about Manhunter. He's giant, all forehead, and you can't see eyes, which is and extremely tall, and extremely tall. Where I was getting at with that question, I love that answer, and in, in, as usual, the answer is much smarter than the question itself but where i was going was i recognize leatherface oh yeah totally mm-hmm. i recognize our good friend leatherface who's a who's who seems to be an emotionally stunted toddler-esque person yes. who is just trying to go about living their life and a bunch of manic hysterical humans end up getting getting in the way and someone who has been done dirty by their family because like the monster is like it's like, okay, Victor, or your name isn't Victor in this movie. Okay, Henry Frankenstein. I have the same question for you that I had for John Hammond, which is that if you can create a fucking dinosaur park, do you really think that people are going to come to your dinosaur park and be like, he only has leaf-eating dinosaurs? I am disappointed. No human being has ever seen a brontosaurus ever in the history of humanity, but this is too anticlimactic for me. I want to see a T-Rex, you know? It's just like, why don't you make a very small person when you <laughs> when you first make your creature? Like, for heaven's sakes, like, why did you have to give him, like, a huge body and what looks like a huge brain? It looks like you were going for big brain also. Like, why did you have to make someone who was so big and spectacularly strong that you couldn't control him and you couldn't protect him and you couldn't ensure his safety or the safety of those around him. Like, did you just have to make like a big reanimated corpse your first time out? Just just make a little one. Come on. Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. We end up with this bumbling monster because what is what is Igor's name in this movie? Fritz. Fritz goes to the the brain class where the um the teacher who ultimately uh, was Frankenstein's teacher and mentor. This is one of the aspects of the movie that Young Frankenstein didn't invent, which I was utterly shocked I by. I <laughs> I, okay, totally. Thank you. Thank you. And this this can be our gateway into talking about Young Frankenstein because this is so good. And I don't know what it was trying to say, but. Fritz goes to this lecture where the mentor of Frankenstein, who is no longer involved in Frankenstein's life, is giving a class on whatever. And he has two jars. And one jar has the best preserved brain he has ever seen. 
and the other jar has an abnormal brain. In Fritz, <laughs> this is so faithfully ripped off in Young Frankenstein. And if you've only ever seen for Young Frankenstein, you can't possibly imagine that it has to be referencing something else. Fritz has the good brain in his arm and gets startled by a noise and drops the brain on the ground <laughs> and then settles for the abnormal brain. And I can't, like I'm saying, like, I don't know if that's a statement. I don't know if it's like, sure, the science can be, can be good, but you can't plan for maybe you have an abnormal brain. Like, I don't know if that's a statement, but it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing that as someone who grew up watching Young Frankenstein, I assumed that that was an invention straight from Mel Brooks's beautiful, broad comedy brain. <laughs> No, like he gets the only thing he added to that scene to make it slightly funnier is that there's like a sign on the door that says slip brains through slot after hours, you know, and a couple other little gags. But it's like he just you can improve on it. Like it's it's it could not be funnier than it was in 1931. (laughs) That is so that to me, that was the highlight of watching these two movies back to back was realizing that that the joke is just playing exactly as it happened. So before we before we talk about Young Frankenstein, I have a I have a question for you, which is in thinking about the fact that Young Frankenstein was another adaptation um, of Frankenstein while also kind of being a, um, a an unofficial sequel. Do you have another Frankenstein-esque movie that you love um, that might not be sort of like direct Frankenstein, but is it along the same lines? Because I was realizing how much, I mean, this is probably just so fucking obvious to anyone who pays attention, but it was my first in realizing it, how much Edward Scissorhands is basically just Oh yeah, you know, and I've only seen that movie one time and I didn't really grow up with it, but yeah, it totally is. Yes. Angus the mad scientist character and, and w- yeah. what if frankenstein was unleashed upon the gauche 80 suburbs like <laughs> yeah and he was a cute emo guy i just know that edward scissorhands was like every you know he was like the alternative crush guy for you know girls i went to high school with uh in the way that like Jeff the killer is now or something. Yeah, no, I think that that's, I think that that's true. And I, I didn't, yeah, the, the, the movie that Tim Burton made, you know, a couple of movies, but his, his first like student movie or whatever it was, his first independent movie was, um, was Frank and Weenie, which is another right. favorite of mine that he, he eventually remade was also very good. Um, but I, I really haven't spent much time because it's been a long time since I like loved Tim Burton. You know, I was a child um, that I haven't put a lot of time into thinking about how clearly impacted and influenced he was by, by the initial Frankenstein because so much of what he makes is about that. Yeah. And Frankenstein is so iconic that it's, it's like the Godfather. Like it's, it, I mean, I actually felt that when we were watching Top Gun because there are so many things that people just say that are quotes from that movie and that we don't even recognize as quotes from that movie anymore because it just has sunk so deep into our cultural consciousness. Nowhere near as deep as Frankenstein, but like pretty deep. Um, yeah. And just like, it's, it's hard to say what our culture would even look like if not for that movie, because it's just, it, it had, there's, there is so much work that was built on that template and then so much work that was built on that work. Um, but yeah, Tim Burton's whole career 
add that to the list. I mean, I also, speaking of creepypasta stuff, like, I was reflecting the other day on the fact that, like, Slenderman has never entirely worked for me because, like, he's Jack Skellington. He's just obviously Jack Skellington. He is, like, Jack Skellington without the cute little face. And that is the only difference. And if there's one thing we know about Jack Skellington, it's that he's alarming if you don't expect to see him or if he's out of context. But he's very, very sweet. And I feel like that's also the whole, that's the Tim Burton. That's the through line of his good stuff anyway. Oh, for sure. We, we in our in our cluster of holiday movies, we'll absolutely need to do Nightmare Before Christmas, and maybe we'll have um, Danny Elfman on as a guest. Uh, we should... <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so Young Frankenstein. Yes. Tell us what it's about. Before we do Young Frankenstein, I have to tell you about the scariest thing in James Whale's Frankenstein, which is that in the credits, it says "From the novel by Mrs. Percy B. Shelley." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's Mary Shelley's first name? <laughs> Mrs. Percy. They're like, and now that she's out of the way, we can make our child. Frankenstein the movie. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, uh, speaking of weird credits things, what did you make of the monster? Everyone has a name next to who they yeah. are. This is the monster. And then it's just a question mark. next. Oh, to it. yeah. Is that like a Blair Witch thing? Like maybe they had a real monster. <laughs> <laughs> Like people are going to be like, was it a real monster? Normally the only, yeah, the only place where you tend to see a question mark is the end. So it's like the monster or yeah. I don't know. I would more, I could more charitably take that to mean like, is he the monster or are the rest of them monsters? But yeah, I'm sure based on how society works that they were implying that they might've had a real monster. I love your take and I wish that that's what it was. Yeah, me too. But we know that it wasn't because we wish that it was. My name, it's pronounced Frankenstein. But aren't you the grandson of the famous Dr. Victor Frankenstein who went into graveyards, dug up freshly buried corpses and transformed dead components into- Yes, yes. We all know what he did. Sarah, tell me, what's Young Frankenstein about? Oh my goodness. Young Frankenstein is a movie about the grandson of Victor Frankenstein, played by Gene Wilder, who goes by Frankenstein, being called back to the family castle, I guess, and trying to escape his destiny, and then escaping his destiny by embracing his destiny in a very valuable message and he does that by creating a monster i should say literally he's like i am interested only in the preservation of life and then he, he's like ah okay i found out how how to do it and yeah i'm gonna try it out i'm gonna make a monster myself and then it's about making the same mistakes as your ancestors and figuring out how to not make the same subsequent mistakes that they did right it's it's i shouldn't be surprised because it's mel brooks and mel brooks is obviously a, a genius and brilliant but i i was surprised by how you know none of the messages in this movie are unintentional like i think that everything yeah. is is kind of laid out right down to when we first meet wilder in this case and he's he's you know frankenstein 
and gets very upset in the way that I could imagine some people would be upset if someone said to you, you know, are you so-and-so's kid? I can understand the baggage that that comes with for a lot of people and sort of what that represents. But we then get a conversation about like essentially like determinism and reflex in the ways that we act in particular situations and the ways that we're programmed to act and the ways that you can sort of get in the way of that programming. And it's, up front within the first like 10 minutes of this movie, it lays out a surprising amount of themes that go even deeper than say like, you know, just like strictly fatherhood and responsibility themes. It talks about, you know, to what degree do we have the ability to intervene upon our own fate? Hmm. And this movie suggests not a whole lot. No, no ability. Uh, it's mm. <laughs> Or like you can't change it. From, you know, barreling into your life, but you can decide how you accept your fate, maybe, or whether you accept it. Right. Your fate is to have a monster, which like all of us got a monster. It's just like, what do you do with your monster? Tell me more about that. (laughs) If we have a T-shirt, that should be the T-shirt. Great. Yeah, I'm into that. I mean, as you know, one of my favorite books on the creative process is The Monster at the End of This Book featuring Grover. Which is a Sesame Street book that opens with Grover saying, please do not go all the way to the end of this book because I have been told there is a monster at the end of this book. So, like, stop turning the pages. And then each page, you know, he begs you to stop turning the pages. He builds a brick wall to stop you from turning the page. And then you turn the page and you see the bricks have all fallen down. And Grover's going, do you know you are very strong? And then you get to the final page. And Grover realizes that he is the monster at the end of this book. And he was so afraid of the monster the whole time. But he was the very same monster that he was afraid of. And it's just the best message (laughs) that I've ever seen in anything. (laughs) Because that's what we're afraid of. The monster that we're afraid of is ourselves, right? And so if I were to extrapolate this to the idea of the criminal and criminality that I think the original Frankenstein is also um, repeating some cultural ideas about and also strengthening, it's the idea that, you know, we know what the abnormal brains are. We know what the criminal looks like because he has a big fucking forehead and stuff like that. And we can predict who is capable of goodness and who is not, and the people who we have designated monsters in our society, which is how we really use the word criminal today, are the people that we do our best to lock up forever. And, you know, that happens for a lot of reasons, and white supremacy is, I think, probably the biggest driver behind it. But I think the reason that we can sell people so easily, even in just, you know, our primetime TV shows on this idea of criminality representing utter evil that can't be changed or altered or mitigated in any way is playing on our own personal fears, this very human fear of like, what kind of terrible thing could I do? I couldn't do something really bad, right? Because I'm not a criminal. I'm a human. And it's like, no, humans are all capable of doing terrible things. Like that's one of the key things about us. Like that and the fact that we don't have fur. I would, If I were an alien, I would say those two things. We have like shocking capacity for both goodness and harm and we have no fur and it's weird like why don't we have fur i'm bothered by this we could be comfortable in such a wider array of temperature whatever those are the two two of the key things about being human but we don't want to accept it and we don't want to be the monster at the end of the book 
this is connected to one of the themes that we've talked about several times in talking about the the 31 Frankenstein because you know <laughs> talking about it being about or meditation on criminality and how criminals are observed um Again, the primary focus for Baron at the end of the movie is that the good name of Frankenstein has been preserved. And like everyone knows the Frankensteins are great. This is a great family. Everything is great. We didn't just create that monster. We're not capable of creating that monster. Everyone knows that we're good. Huzzah the end. We're throwing a big party for the town. Right, right. And they won't remember us as the family that created the monster that killed that little girl. They'll remember us as the family that killed the monster, which is exactly how the American government functions. <laughs> in, this, in this movie, in Young Frankenstein, we have a character who's actually, because of family legacy, very well aware um, and maybe in, in even greater denial about his proximity to potentially being, you know, monstrous or like sort of, you know, mon monster adjacent or, or capable of bad things. And so he is obsessed with creating this new myth around who he is and what he's capable of. He changes his name. He wants to be known for his contributions to science, but it's, he can't be escaped. His nature cannot be escaped. What is the reason that they give for him going to the castle at the beginning? I can't remember why they have him go. I think it's like an inheritance thing. Like he gets a message. Oh, right. He gets, there's some creep comes into the, uh, comes into the back of the room is there the whole time. I believe it's some inheritance thing from the Baron. Yeah. But the point is that it's like, we can tell that he's hounded by this feeling of, of having to define himself as the opposite of his ancestor, which is, you know, exactly what's keeping him from being free. Right. Talking about the plot of this, we meet him. He's a professor. He has to go back to Transylvania. Not quite, don't quite understand the Transylvania reference outside of it's just a scary place. Why not be Transylvania? Just why not? Throw it in there. Yeah. We also see as he's teaching his class that he's not a very compassionate person. He kind of knees an old man in the groin. Yes. He gives him an extra dollar. <laughs> yeah. So we know he has to work on himself. We, we we can see a few areas he needs to work on. Well, he's so focused on science, he can't be focused on being a good human. So he goes back to the castle uh, where, the, where the family is from. He basically uncovers all of the information that belonged to the family through a private library about how to create the monster. He creates his own monster. He has an Igor. He has an assistant who's played by, um, by Terrigar, who is just glorious. Named Inga. And uh, monster hijinks ensue. And then he has to come to terms with who and what he is. And very interesting thing, things happen to get to that place. Um, so, I mean, where does this movie really start for you? There's a lot of setup. Like, where, where, does the, where does the drama and tension begin for you? When he arrives at the castle, we have this wonderful scene that, like, is comedic, but which I accepted as purely dramatic when I was a kid, where uh, Gene Wilder as Frankenstein is having a nightmare. And he's ta literally tossing and turning in bed going, Destiny! destiny no escape <laughs> um and then after anga hears him um and they go together and find the revolving bookcase that takes them to the secret library that will teach him how to make the monster and then it's like from the time he figures out that he can do it he decides that he will do it and we just kind of we're no longer 
I think in that moment, feeling the tension of like destiny is coming for me. It's like, oh my God, I can make a monster. This is exciting. Um, and he and the movie are distracted by that plot. And then that unfolds. Um, and we have all kinds of comedic stuff about the obtaining of the body and the brain, which as we've discussed is like only slightly more comedic than the original movie. And then we have the monster going on its rampage. And like that part is played pretty close to the original. Like we, we have the same story, the same basic narrative going forward. And then what I find so amazing about the scene where they, they capture the monster played by Peter Boyle and bring him back to the <laughs> Frankenstein castle um, is that the, the entire plot, the whole story, everyone's fate is completely different um, from that moment forward. And the whole thing pivots on the fact that Gene Wilder embraces his monster. And to me, that was, you know, I was watching this movie on a day when I was feeling not very good <laughs> about anything, partly because this was during the the week-long period when Portland, Oregon was just shrouded in smoke completely. And like, we were like checking online to see like when, you know, the off-the-charts hazardous air would go to like very unhealthy and then to unhealthy and then to unhealthy for some and then finally to like normal. Um, and there was something about, you know, just on that especially dark day watching this movie where, which I had seen many times and where I just never fully appreciated the depth of the fact that it is a story about how like this, this classic tragedy, all the tragedy in it can be averted by just embracing your monster. And also crucially, you know, maybe crucially, the monster doesn't kill the little girl in this version because in Mel Brooks land, everything is cute and funny. And so she wants to seesaw with the monster. <laughs> and so he sits down and she gets catapulted directly into her very own bedroom and it all works out. That to me is why the the killing of the girl of Maria in the, in the original Frankenstein was so jarring to me because again, I, I grew up with that with that scene. And I grew up with monster squad where the, there were a, an adorable little girl befriends Frankenstein and brings out his humanity through treating him like a human or th through seeing his heart or whatever. And, and so I was like, Holy shit. We have grown up thinking of Frankenstein's monster as a friend to little girls because of the revisionist stuff that we've been raised on, which is really nice when you think about it. Absolutely. The Howard zinification of uh, seeing the monster for the real human that, that it is. So I, I, love and we've been talking about the embrace of the monster you have brought up this quote more than once uh, about him being a good boy and but one of the my favorite nuances in that is you know he embraces the monster sure but he also has the dad tendency of wanting his kid to look good on him i mean there's this whole part with like the classic scene from this movie is where they both perform putting on the ritz and part of that is basically him being like, yeah, it's a monster, but like, it's a real, it's a cultured monster. Like this thing I created is capable of high art. Um, and it, it's, you know, in the way where I was always like, like, dad, why do you want me to comb my hair? Like, I don't understand. And he's like, cause you're, you're an extension of my image. <laughs> 
And I like how that that played into the embrace is, yes, there's this part where he becomes better for himself and he becomes better sort of like generally by embracing this thing that he created and being a present father, which we did not see in the previous movie. And and uh, but still, he has the vanity of a father. Um, You represent me and I need you to look good. Yeah. Yeah. And then he has to learn how to, you know, how that can undermine him also, because then that doesn't work out um, because the monster gets startled and runs away. And then the way that, you know, he figures out how to make everybody happy is that he, Frankenstein, is like, oh, what if I connect myself to my monster and give him some of my intellect somehow science you know tesla coils buzzing and then you transfer some of your intellect um to the abnormal brain and we will balance each other out and then we can then things will be fine and then that works out and everyone's happy and of course what happens as a side effect of that is that somehow the monster gives like a few inches of dick to his creator i think in that process that's how I've always interpreted it anyway. No, that's, th- that is absolutely what happens. And, and I'm curious, I mean, <laughs> I think a lot of people, and I, I would love to know what Mel Brooks has said about this because, I, you know, it came out a hundred years ago and I'm sure he's talked about it a hundred times, but the, I think a lot of funny people think that they have to be funny to make up for other inadequacies, um, um, literal, literal or figurative, you know? And so this idea that he trades a little bit of his intellect for a bigger dick is so hilarious and on the nose about where I think Mel Brooks is at. Mm, (laughs) Good point. Well, and you get the sense that like, this wasn't intellect that he was using in a way that was making him happy. Right. right. You know, and he didn't know he would, he would get the big dick. You, You get the sense that like, yeah, he knew he was giving his monster some of his intellect to make it all work out. And then like, because he made good choices, the sort of just God at the heart of Mel Brooks movies was like more dick for you. Honey, did you see? I put a special hamper in the bathroom just for your shirts. And the other one is just for socks and poo poo undies. Frankenstein's former fiance ends up with the monster because she she's vain and loves big dick. And that's how she fell in love with the monster initially. Right. Is like she she ends up sleeping with him and is uh, ends up being brought to song by his um, endowment. And Frankenstein himself gets to be with the TA that he basically leaves his his fiance for. The juxtaposition between how the the marriages that they both end up in is really interesting because he leaves his original partner for like a you know I don't know if she's younger but certainly a more um um less titled yes uh, a less less titled lady their marriage looks like maybe like fun and exciting and there's mystery and maybe some like sexuality involved in there the monster ends up with his former partner who 
is basically talking about how they se- she separates their hampers so that like the shit stained underwear can go in one place and then the uh, other underwear can go in another place. Like he's basically describing the advanced stage of a sexless marriage. And I, 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 that struck me immediately and that has nothing to do with dads, but I was like, what is he saying? <laughs> what is he saying about partners We don't here? normally care about a director's vision, but we do care about Mel Brooks's vision. Absolutely. Especially since he a- ended up with Smoke Show and hilarious and wonderful person and Bancroft. Yes. You know, shows that um, uh, good humor and good intellect can certainly make up for other shortcomings. You know what? Some people like <laughs> tiny little directors. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I always felt that like they had both ended up happy by not marrying well, which is what they were trying to do by marrying each other. Madeline Kahn and Gene Wilder's characters. I always interpreted that scene as happening to show us how far the monster has come. And it's, you know, making sure we know that, like, he's able to live as urbane a life as he wants to. Yeah, it's interesting. I would like to see more of how he's functioning in these circles. Does he enjoy talking to Madeline Kahn's dad? for example. I also, as a kid, always thought that the thing that she said about the different hampers, one for the poo-poo undies, I always thought that was because he was a monster and he just like still has trouble with that. And now I know that just (laughs) women married to human men routinely complain that their husbands can't wipe their asses. So like, I, I don't think that was based on. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, totally. It (laughs) it comes to, it comes to women being relegated to do all of the cleaning up after men, regardless of what happens. To make poo poo undie hampers, even if they're not married to monsters (laughs) made out of bits of corpses. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's commentary on just being married to a man generally is like being married to a monster. Right. Because as a child, I was like, right, if you were sewn out of bits of corpses, you would have poor sphincter control. So this makes sense. And I'm like, no, it's just about marriage. This is not commentary on sphincter control. (laughs) You've talked a lot about the setup for sure. But what do you think the resolve is? Like, where do we leave Frankenstein in this movie? To me, the, the biggest turning point, like the turning point within the turning point scene is when the monster is finally face to face with his creator and Gene Wilder is talking to him and says, you are good. And the monster just like, I've already described this scene as we've been recording today, but it's just so important to me. And the, and I, and it's just amazing to me that I saw this movie so many times and I don't remember the scene. Like I don't remember ever thinking about or finding it important. I watched this as, you know, as a kid who loved comedy And I love that, like, this movie was totally delightful to me and made me happier to live in this stupid, mean world, even when that moment wasn't important to me. And now it is. And it just I can see themes in it that weren't there before, but it it, it works for all ages. Um, And just so he says, you are good. And the monster just like has this like anguished cry. Right. He's just like, like, and that's the moment where, like, you just need someone to be like, you are good. When he becomes verbal at the end of the movie, he has this beautiful, eloquent speech, which actually is more accurate to the text, where the monster like learns how to read and becomes extremely well spoken <laughs> by the end. Um, and you know, and stands up for his creator and is like, This wonderful man saved me. I love that this movie is about the power of someone like 
speaking lovingly of you to your face, basically. And also how that's that's how the producers ends, too. I just watched that again for the first time since uh, middle school age. And, you know, at the end, they go to prison. It's one of those happy let's go to prison at the end movies like the Blues Brothers. But the sort of emotional core of the ending is Gene Wilder's character. It's always Gene Wilder who does this standing up and saying that this man who is corrupt and cheating and lying to everyone is such a good man and a good friend because he taught him how to be carefree. It's just like, I love that the sort of core of Mel Brooks movies is like men loving other men and then everything is better. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think that the, the, the big, you know, you said, you said that sort of the, what that speaks to or what that resolve speaks to is having someone basically just like accept you. But I think, you know, speaking obviously to the the theme of the show, um, it's super helpful if your dad does it. So you don't have to spend the rest of your life looking for it in other people. Yes. And so, and so, you know, he gives him that gift for sure. And then just taking out the, the funny trade of intellect for, um, for endowment, uh, he, he not only, not only accepts his creation, accepts his son is present in all the ways that, you know, his grandfather was not when he created his monster. Um, he desires to bestow upon his son or his creation intellect, which frankly, I don't think a lot of dads are prioritized. Which original Frankenstein wasn't interested in doing either. Or I guess that was the original intent with the normal brain. But yeah, I feel like just the the idea that you can end this conflict by imparting the power of reason to your creation rather than trying to make an automaton who you can just, you know, force to lift heavy stuff for you or whatever the plan was. <laughs> to show people you're not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the intention is so interesting as well because the intention of bestowing that intellect is to give him voice and express his experience. Mm. I mean, again, like, I don't know how much uh, Mel Brooks is creating a, a blueprint for that when he's writing this movie. He and Gene Wilder are writing this movie. But but what he wants to do to his, his son is give his son or give his creation the ability to express what his experience is like and therein be able to absolve him from any strife and misunderstanding with like angry crowds again like we just know so much about Mel Brooks it's hard to separate to what you know from Mel Brooks but like Mel Brooks is a guy who spent his entire life trying to figure out how to connect with people through his intellect and fucking still does it is still doing it, you know, in, is in his mid to late nineties. Obviously there's always a little bit of Mel Brooks in there. Mel Brooks is the dad of this movie in his, his own universe, but you can really see where his values lie in this movie. It's also interesting to me that the original Frankenstein, which came out in 1931 is just very German. There's a lot of German stuff on display. It's not part of the plot, really, but there's just a lot of Oktoberfest-looking people, you know, dancing around <laughs> in key scenes. So many frows. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and then the monster is chased down, you know, on the day of, like, it's it's the Frankenstein wedding day, so they're throwing a big party for the whole town. So everyone's wearing, you know... Oktoberfest outfits and having a festival and then Maria's father walks in with her little corpse and they're like it's like turning a day look into a night look they're like you know let's turn this festival into a mob and then they're all these like 
people in German national costume are like chasing someone with a, you know, different facial bone structure, you know, into a house that they're going to set on fire. Like, it must be said that the story probably fares better in the hands of a Jewish director. (laughs) (laughs) Let's think about this through 1931 eyes. It's like just thinking about like monsters before Nazis is really interesting. Monsters took on a whole new meaning when Nazis came around and then took on another whole meaning when like the terrorist construct came around. So yeah, like this is just was the scariest thing people could imagine was this and like plague and uh, the depression. And just, you know, and just getting maimed. Like I think industrialization is like, you know, going to work in a factory and like you're the one who got scalped that day. <laughs> like what's scarier than your job in 1931, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Well, we find out in 2020. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I feel like watching a movie in 1931, you have this feeling of like, oh, boy, stuff is going to happen. But like, that's how people are going to feel in the future watching like the shit we were watching in 2018. They're going to be like, oh, oh, they don't even realize. And it's like, yes, we don't. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) When I think about Mel Brooks's legacy, I always think about the fact that he was in World War Two, you know, and like this is and I think this is the creation also of someone who went to war and who saw what fighting results in and who creates, you know, this world for his characters where, like, the consequences are rarely death in a Mel Brooks movie, right? Like, I love that at the end of Robin Hood Men in Tights, the sheriff of Nottingham character ends up with Latrine, the witch who loves him and who wants to have sex with him, and that's his punishment. Like, he's going to die She gives him a magic pill to bring him back to life, and then he has to have sex with her. And, like, that's his consequence. Are you going to die? No, you have to have sex with a witch. Like, nobody dies in these movies. They just, like, they they survive comedically. And, like, usually everybody ends up with the person that they're supposed to be with. And people have good sex with each other in Mel Brooks movies, too. Like, I presume that, like... My own personal interpretation of how that story ended up was that he, you know, it seemed like a bad idea, but then he realized that Latrine had the moves and then they were like really happy for the rest of their lives. Mm. Yeah. In Young Frankenstein, everyone is basically finding who they are most compatible with in all ways. And sexual compatibility is one of those primary ways. Yeah. This movie is so great. Everything works out for everybody, which I think is the true definition of a comedy. Because when you say, you know, what are the Shakespeare comedies? It's like, they're the ones where everyone gets married and in the tragedies, everybody dies. It's very clear cut. The basic kinds of story are like everybody falls in love and ends up with the right person or they're dead. Like those are the choices. <laughs> oh my God. And you get great, a uh, great Gene Hackman performance. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> I would very strongly suggest that the next time anyone who wants to watch Young Frankenstein is going to watch Young Frankenstein. Frankenstein 31 is not a long movie. It's under 80 minutes and it is you will benefit greatly from watching it right before. It might not even be 70 minutes long. It's like the same length as Land Before Time and much less scary pretty much. <laughs> do you uh do you have any wrapping Franken thoughts? You know, yeah, I would just also close by recommending that people watch the original Frankenstein because it's a movie, it's one of those movies that you can get a very clear idea of what it was to the culture 
and what happens in it without ever actually sitting down and watching it. But it's worth it to do because you get to think about what it was like for people to encounter the story in 1931. It's really powerfully made. It's, I think, an important landmark in the history of film. And also Boris Karloff is amazing in it. Like he gives this character a lot of humanity. The love that I feel for the monster is really intensified by my having experienced this original portrayal of him. So yeah, go watch, go watch Frankenstein if you haven't yet. It's worth it. It changed the whole world and it's shorter than some prestige TV episodes. <laughs> we know who the dads are mm-hmm. in the Frankensteins uh, or Frankensteins. Who is the daddy? I got to say it's Mel Brooks, oh. right? He just like comes in. It's like he the story was like a floor strewn with Legos and he comes in and he's like, I'm going to arrange these Legos into a different shape and I think it will be more pleasing. And then he did. And he built a beautiful little little Lego sex farm. Where do you go to? Why don't you go where fashion All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening to Wire Dads. Who should we be thanking? We should be thanking Carolyn Kendrick, who produces the show and she also makes original music for it. We are grateful. It's the reason why the show sounds good. You want to keep listening. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for doing what you do. We want to invite you to follow along on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram. You can catch us there. We're always uh, engaging, as it were, over in those places. Uh, If once a week with us isn't enough, you can catch us there. And we hope that you do. Thank you so much to Patreon supporters for supporting the show with some dollars. We really appreciate that as well. It helps us produce it and offset all the costs related to that. Uh, Patreon supporters get additional content. And this week we talk about Mel Brooks movies and other things that we just enjoy and that we've been watching this week. Let's see. What else are we missing here? I don't know. Take care of yourself. It's a fucking weird place out there. (laughs) The world is wild right now. And uh, above all else, we just appreciate that you're spending some time with us and that we get to spend some time with you. So thank you so much. Uh, Whether or not you support via Patreon, just this time together is good. And we are grateful that uh, that you're willing to spend it with us. Next week, we will watch Angels in America, the uh, the version that was on HBO in the aughts. It's obviously an epic piece, uh, and it's epic for a lot of reasons, but we talk a lot about its connection to Donald Trump and kind of predicting Donald Trump. We talk about some of Donald Trump's dad issues. I know that you don't need more Trump in your life, but um, we certainly get into it with Angels in America. We promise by way of being visited upon by a real-life angel, Emma Eisenberg, we have a fantastic multi-dimensional conversation that doesn't exclusively land on uh, understanding the pathology of one Mr. Donald Trump, but it certainly goes there a little bit, and we hope that you'll join us. That's it for now. Enjoy yourself, and uh, be good. Just be good to yourself and to all the people around you. Weird times. Weird times. <laughs>